It's time for the PowerMizzou.com podcast with interviews and analysis of your Missouri Tigers. Now, here's your host, Gabe DeArmond. Welcome back to another week of the PowerMizzou.com podcast. A, just to be honest, a terrible week in college football. There are, I mean, college game days at Iowa, Iowa State. That kind of tells you what you need to know. So, You've got to have some happiness in your college football Saturday, so you need eight Shakespeare's pizzas, minimum. It, feel free to order more. They can accommodate up to 2,500 people. So if you know everybody in the town of Jackson, Missouri, who's coming up to watch the SEMO game, order enough pizza for 2,500 people. Mention the podcast. Shakespeare's going to give you 15% off. That's a good deal for you. You can drown your misery of there being no decent games in Shakespeare's in your beverage of choice. It helps us. Everybody wins all around. Um, Missouri plays SEMO. That's the extent of my preview. I have literally nothing else to say. Yeah, I was going to say, given your tone for the first opening minute here, I, I, I think we can all tell how uh, how you feel about this game. Yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, one of the over-unders we did is SEMO players who were not mentioned by name at the press conference that you know the over under was point five, and we are both under. Yeah, I, I mean, I why would I know anyone on Simo's right. team unless I like had a personal acquaintance somehow? It, I, you know, I, mean, I don't follow a lot of FCS football. It really isn't a sign. Uh, it, it maybe it's a sign of disrespect, but like we don't mean to insult Simo. I've heard they're a good FCS team. Yeah. That's great for them. I I remember it was the early 1990s, and Marshall came in here as the number one Division two or Division one double A team in the country. Missouri was awful and beat them 41 to 10. Like, mm-hmm. short of, like, a bus accident on the way to the game. Yeah. I I actually just said this to somebody. If Missouri loses this game, I am 100% fine with Jim Stark firing Barry Odom Sunday morning. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. It, it, you see it very rarely. It happens. An FBS team loses to an FCS team. Usually it's a team like, like Kansas or someone who's, like, 0-0 and 12. Right. Uh, not a team that has you know top twenty five type aspirations. Uh, yeah, I mean it's just it's just like like you said, not trying to be disrespectful, but like I I don't know I couldn't name a, any player on like you know a, your average MAC team, so I, I certainly am not going to know I, right a player on on an FCS team, and I just don't expect I don't see any way it's it's competitive. I think best case scenario, you know the it, it's over by halftime and uh, and, the, and we can the backups, write our stories. In the, the backups get a chance to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we're looking for Power Mizzou backups for this one. So, hey, if you're listening and you're interested, yeah. tweet me. Maybe you'll get my press pass for this <laughs> game. We'll find out. But uh, that's that's all the time we're spending on this game. We actually have some interesting things to talk about on the podcast, or at least we think so. We hope you think so, too. So we will get to it. We welcome into the podcast now Lutheran North head coach Carl Reed. And the Crusaders, uh, by week this week, played a couple games so far. Coach, first off, thanks for the time. And and just before we get into talking recruiting and stuff, just want to kind of uh, get an update. How's your season started? How are things going over there? Uh, we started off one and one. We beat a, a solid Trinity team. We lost to a very good Cardinal Ritter team. Um, and we on a bye week this week, and we got to keep working and, and getting toward ready for Westminster. Now, uh, one, two, before we get into some of the recruiting talk, I know uh, that, that you guys have been dealing with some things. Antonio Doyle's out the first first two or three games of this year. 
Uh, Travion Ford is uh, an underclassman who's being highly recruited and not able to play varsity this year. What can you tell us kind of about where those situations are? And, and I guess you get Antonio back here in a couple weeks? Well, Antonio will be back in a couple weeks. His first game will be against Lutheran South, um, which would be week five of the season. Um, he's been out since last year. We kind of already knew going in that that was going to be the situation. Uh, Travion has an appeal coming up Wednesday, so next Wednesday. And so we'll know a little bit more about his situation uh, moving forward after next week. Carl, obviously, you know, Anton, speaking of Antonio Doyle, he, he was committed to uh, Missouri for a little while. Now his, his recruiting, his recruitment has opened back up. Um, just to start off, can you take us through uh, a little bit of just kind of, you know, the factors uh, that, that led him to, uh, to ultimately uh, open that back up and opt to take some more visits? Well, Antonio and I have been talking um, for quite a while, um, and, and I think that I didn't really know what the scenario was when he committed because I wasn't there, okay? And that I did not expect him to commit because he had favored Oklahoma and Texas A&M heavy into that. Mizzou was not the school he was originally going to visit. I'm, I actually made him visit Mizzou because I just think that you you have to always give the University of Missouri a chance. Um but I think as the as the weeks went on, he really wanted to make sure that he took all of his visits, and Missouri is still very much an option for him. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I know it does happen more than people think when a kid decommits from one school and ends up back at that school. So just kind of for fans that are skeptical, um, you know, how much of a, a chance does Missouri still have in this thing? Well, I think the thing with fans is a lot of them really don't understand the inner workings of recruiting and really is from both sides of it. I prefer that a kid like Antonio doesn't commit and then decommit from a school because you're dealing kind of with the mess that you're dealing with now. I wish he would have handled it differently. But there's also a flip side to that. You have colleges who offer your kids scholarships and then they renege, and that happens also. You know, So you're kind of trying to manage it from both sides and make sure you put the kid in the situation that's the best for him. But Antonio has definitely earned the right to take the visits to the schools that he's interested in. And uh, I know you tweeted out yesterday he's he's scheduled three of those. I believe it's A&M, Oklahoma, and Illinois still has one other one. And then, uh, you know, we, we try to stay out of the personal lives of 17-year-old kids because I don't really think it matters. But you and I have talked about this, and, and you know, I know you wanted to talk about it, and you know the question's coming. So Antonio had a child about a month ago, and, and just – how how is how does that kind of change maybe his outlook on things and, and you know just a situation that obviously is not a lot of seventeen year olds necessarily find themselves in just I, you know is has that made things any more difficult for him? Well, I think that any time that you have a child, right, no matter what age you are, there are some different elements or some different choices to your life. Obviously, having a child at 17 years old is not optimal. And when I found out about the situation, I was I was displeased with it, as was his mom and, and, and the young lady's parents that was involved. And, and it's one of those things that you wish wouldn't happen, but now here you are, so how are you going to deal with the situation? And it's really the, the – it's kind of a side effect. Antonio was a student at Lutheran North. He transferred to Hazelwood West. 
he was allowed to play. When he left Hazelwood West to come back to Luther North, the administration was very upset, and they filed a grievance so he couldn't play. So in the time that he couldn't play and he's not allowed to participate in any high school athletics, he created a child. And that probably doesn't happen if he was allowed to play. And, you know, that's kind of the flip side of, you know, a kid having that kind of free time when he's not involved with his team, when he's not allowed to be in activities. So you're dealing with that situation. But now that he does have a child, I think that he does have to look at his options and and look at how they're going to affect his life in a more serious way because he, he's, he's dealing with another human being that he's not responsible for. I know you uh, tweeted yesterday that that he has visits set up to uh, Oklahoma, Texas A&M, Illinois. Um, he already officially visited Missouri. That was when he originally committed. He has a fifth visit that is still kind of up in the air. I'm um, just curious if you, you could possibly break down uh, you know a potential timeline for when he might uh, end up finalizing a decision. Well, if it was up to me, all of this would have been done in the summertime, you know, before the season started. So I, I think the timeline would be after he completes all of the visits, uh, him and I sit down and meet, and we'll go through the pros and cons, and, and we'll make a decision there. I typically, over the years, have tried to, to stay out of it and let those guys do whatever they want. But Antonio seems to be um, – to need a little more guidance than what some of the other guys have needed in the recruiting process. And so we'll, we'll get a little more actively involved. Last one kind of specifically on, and this isn't specific to Antonio necessarily, but I know that, that you have said in the past, and I, I think all high school coaches say, you know, it's their preference. They would, they would like their kids not to change their minds and, and decommit. But at the same time, it's, you know, if that's what the kid wants to do, it's not a coach's job to stand in the way. So can you just kind of explain for people listening what your stance is, not not specific to Antonio, but really with any kid who might be in that situation? Well, I think that every kid should take all his visits, number one. I felt that way with Ronnie. I felt that way with Jack. Um, I feel that way with Antonio and, and the other kids that we've had. I feel like they all should take their visits. I also don't think that they should decommit once they commit. All right? But it's also not my job, and it's not the right thing to do to make a kid do something that they're not really comfortable with doing. And, you know, I, I don't think – I think fans who are associated and cheering for one team, they don't see the other side of it, too. They also don't see the commitments that the school breaks when they offer kids scholarships and they take them away, all right? So my relationship with the colleges is a little different because I also have to deal with the other side of that because if a school decides to drop Antonio or Ronnie Perkins or Jack or any kid from a scholarship, which happens very often, all right, well, then that's not a big of a deal to the fans because they're not dealing with that part. Well, that, that bothers me just as much when that part of it happens. And so that happens frequently. So ultimately you want the kid to do what he thinks is the best decision for him because he's the one who has to live with the outcome of the decision that he makes. Yeah, Carl, you and I have talked about this a lot. and Like I haven't been shy in saying this. I, I think the recruiting process on both sides is pretty much broken. I mean, you've got kids who are more interested in getting – you know, social Twitter likes and Instagram follows based on tweeting out their top 19 schools or whatever. You've got coaching staffs who are offering 300 scholarships for 20 spots. And, and the reality is 260 of those kids they're offering, but they can't commit. So I, as a high school coach, what's your, 
How does it change? I mean, is there a way to fix this? Well, the way that you need to fix it would have to come from the NCAA. And the only way that I see that happening is kids being able to sign scholarships during a timeline that that's almost immediately at the time of the offer, but that's more of a structural more of a structural change. I think with the colleges, it's it's all about integrity and honesty and, and, and having a good relationship. And what tends to happen is that I think in life, in all factors, whether you're a college coach or a high school coach, or no matter what your given profession is, people tend to do what's best for them. And so at the end of the day, a college can offer a kid a scholarship, but at some point if he decides that that's not the best situation for him, then he's going to go in a different direction. Well, the kid also has that same right. If he if he commits to a school and then he decides that that's not the best thing for him, he also has the right to make that change. And the only people who are being consistently condemned are the kids. Nobody's calling the college coaches to the carpet for pulling scholarships away from kids. There's stories all over the country. There's guys getting dropped the day before National Signing Day. There's guys being dishonest with kids all the time, and they aren't being held to the same standard that we expect kids to be held to, but they're grown men and they're millionaires, you know, and that's the difference. Yeah, I think that that definitely is starting to come a little bit more to light, but still certainly a, a fairly rampant issue. Um, Carl, we talked to you last, I think, uh, on the podcast after Jack Buford uh, committed to Missouri, so about, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so, and uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, Missouri, Missouri's presence, recruiting presence in St. Louis and kind of the, the unique challenges that, that they've had to overcome there. How have you just kind of seen that, um, that presence? And uh, obviously Missouri's landed uh, quite a few commitments from kids in the St. Louis area in this cycle. How have you seen that that kind of presence, uh, the, the vibe surrounding Missouri and the St. Louis area maybe change uh, since we talked to you last? Well, like I, like I said, yeah, and I thought they were probably getting a bad rap. When, you know, when people think they weren't recruiting the city, they were recruiting the city very hard. And with the commitments that they have now, what you just basically see is is the, the, the seeds being planted and, and now they're starting to bloom a little bit because those guys, you know, when they weren't getting the kids a couple of years ago, those relationships they were building are now allowing them to get the kids that are coming out now. And they, they have done a good job of recruiting in, in the area and building the relationships that they need to build. And, uh, Carl, I want to give you a, a chance to just kind of uh, let fans know. I mean, you, you've been pretty clear, I think, d- despite maybe Antonio decommitting or whatever, like you, you guys, you still have a, are pretty happy with your relationship with Barry Odom and his staff, correct? I don't I, I don't have any issues with Coach Odom. Um, I think we have a good relationship. I have no issues with my kids going to Mizzou. If it was up to me, they all would go to Mizzou because it's easier for me. But – they at the same time they have a right with them along with their families to make whatever decision they feel like is best for them. Carl, uh, shifting gears a tiny bit, just wanted to uh, to ask about some of the uh, the younger prospects you might have, uh, you know, coming up in, in the coming years. I know uh, Josh Helmholt, one of our rivals analysts, was just uh, out there watching the game against Cardinal Riddle this week last weekend. He mentioned uh, Toriano Pride. Um, who else may, might be a, a name, a local name to keep an eye on out of Lutheran North? Uh, Toriano Pride and Ali Wells in that 22 class are, are as good as it gets. Toriano already has a Missouri offer. Uh, amongst others, Ali has a bunch of offers. Uh, Kyrie Loggins and Marquise Kane and Jalen Banks in that class are, are going to also be guys 
that we expect to be Division One guys. And so, you know, over the course of the years and time, how does how does it all equal out, add up? Academics comes into effect. Uh, guy size and growth potential definitely comes into effect. It's just so many different scenarios um, and things that can happen in recruiting, and you never know how it's going to end. Some of the offers that kids have now, they'll lose some, they'll gain some. There'll be a tremendous amount of coaching change, whether it's position coaches or coordinators. So that also has an effect on recruiting. It's really so hard to predict what would end up happening with a kid in the end. Carl, I want to move away from football and uh, and just ask you. I mean, obviously, over the last few months, there there have been a lot of things in the St. Louis area. Uh, Jalen McKenzie, the the eighth grader who was killed. I know there were a couple uh, shooting incidents at at high school jamborees. You, some other coaches, have been very vocal on social media. I've seen a lot of the kids who maybe aren't even still in the area. Trevor Trout, EJ Liddell, guys like that, kind of addressing this stuff on social media and. Hey, look, I'm always pretty clear to say I'm a 43-year-old white guy who grew up in the suburbs and never really dealt with a lot of things these kids have dealt with. Can you just what are your feelings and and kind of what are you guys all as athletes and maybe visible people in the community hoping to change about what's happened in St. Louis the past I I don't know few years? Well, St. Louis is a dangerous place, and and. That always has to be recognized and dealt with, and kids have to do, and, and parents really is more so a parent thing, have to do a better job of monitoring kids and making sure kids are where they're supposed to be and not where they're not supposed to be because so many things can go wrong here, and if they go wrong here, you know, it could, it could end up in a real bad situation for a kid. Um, having more role models, having more activities for kids, I think one of the things that's really a problem here, and it's not just a problem for our schools, but in the St. Louis area, whether it's public or private schools, no matter, because there's a lot of arguments on public and private school things, but I think that we have to take a long look at when we're not allowing kids to play sports because a situation forced them to have to transfer schools. Whether they moved, whether they, whether it was a, a safe school situation, we have to understand if you're not from St. Louis, or you're probably not from the inner city of Kansas City, then you really don't have an understanding of what some of these kids are having to deal with and some of the traumatic instances that they're having to go through. And when you sit back and you say, well, a kid can't play football or a kid can't play basketball or run track because I'm upset that the kid transferred schools, then you might be putting that kid in a situation where you're putting his life in danger because he doesn't have – the ability to be a part of a team that keeps them occupied and keeps them busy and keeps them out of harm's way. Yeah, Carl, you actually kind of uh, transitioned well into my my last question for you. You know, I know that that there's been talk around the St. Louis area about kind of the, the rise of, of private schools uh, with, with these strong athletics programs such as Trinity and Lutheran North, and then there's certainly some pushback uh, against that from some people. Just just what what is kind of you know obviously. You know, you're an employee of a uh, a private school, but but what are you know some of the reasons that you feel like it it, it can be a positive thing to to have these programs? Well, I've been on both sides of it. I've been a public school coach. Um, I was the head coach at U City. I was the head coach at Hazelwood West. I, I graduated from Hazelwood Central, and now I'm the head coach at Lupin North. I think that right now, um, from an academic standpoint, and from a safety standpoint. 
there's probably parents who have adjusted in the area to the schools that their kids are attending to because safety is a real issue in our city. You know, the amount of gun incidents that are happening at some of the schools, the amount of violence that is taking place, there are parents that's going to look into environments that they consider to be safer for their kids, and those are those are very real things. And it hurts people's feelings sometimes, and they get upset about it, and it doesn't make them feel good. But those same people who are complaining aren't having their kids go to school at those schools and in, and walking through the neighborhoods that they're having to walk through. So they really can't relate to what's going on here. And they talk about it a lot, but they have no idea what it's like for a young African-American man or a female that has to grow up and live in St. Louis. Carl, we'll just finish you up with, uh, obviously, this is a bye week, and we appreciate your time. We, you've probably got better ways to spend future Thursdays than 20 minutes on our podcast every week. So I want to give you a chance, just anything that, that wasn't addressed or, or anything that you were hoping to, to kind of be able to say and get out there at all? No, I, I think that everything is good. It's like always, there's a lot of great talent here in St. Louis. Um, and some guys doing some really great things at the college level. And um, the coaches here in the area are doing a really good job of promoting their kids and their programs and giving the kids from our communities an opportunity to be successful. All right. Well, Carl, appreciate your time, and uh, good luck down the rest of the season. I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thanks, Carl. All right. Thanks, All right, Have Jay. a good one. Carl Reed, Luther North head coach. And I kind of knew it would probably get into a little more than, than just football, really. Not much of it was about football, but I, I think it's important stuff there. And, uh, look, on a number of fronts, I don't really feel qualified to address the violence in St. Louis and all that, but wanted Carl to. But, I mean, the the whole recruiting thing, is it, it's gotten completely out of hand. And like Carl said, it, it's on both sides. And I don't know. We've talked about it here before. I don't know how to fix it, but this is a process that, that – puts kids i think in bad spots yeah it's it's tough because like you know for for those that we, like we you know we we can see it kind of from both sides talking to to people from the school and people who are kids who are being recruited like you know i can understand why sometimes this process would frustrate coaches because you know you have mm-hmm. i mean you're dealing with 17 year old kids it's always going to be tough especially you know kids who, who maybe have other other forces other people you know around trying to influence their decision and or maybe you know maximize kind of their opportunity um, at the same time, you know, like like Carl said, you know, <laughs> with these schools when they're where they're handing out three hundred plus offers, so few of those offers are committable that that you know, as a kid, you have to have backup options and you know, explore all your options as well. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 probably I mean, it's probably not something that's going to get immediately better, but you know, you do hope that at least like you know, I remember Ross Dellinger wrote a story around signing day, like you do hope that at least with the awareness, we're moving in the right direction. Well, and it takes two things. Number one, it takes kids who are willing to maybe be a little bit embarrassed mm-hmm. and say, Hey, this, I tried to commit to five places and none of them would take me, Yeah, you know, and I ended up and no 17 year old kid wants to say that every 17 year old kid wants. I mean, it's just like when you hire a coach, he's the only guy that we offered the yeah. job and this is the only school I want to coach at. It's all crap, but that's what everybody says. So if kids are willing to say it, um, I, I think that's a step in the right direction. And, you know, the other thing that Carl said that I thought was interesting, and I've had high school coaches in this state tell me this for 15 years now, I would love every kid I have to go to the University of Missouri because it makes my life easier. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not telling these kids not to go here, but it's also in no way that they owe the University of Missouri nothing. It is right. not their job to tell kids to go to school here. The kid gets to go wherever he wants to go. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, 
I mean, it's just St. Louis as it's producing a lot of talent right now, and and with as you know that that kind of Tiger Ten class showed, like other schools are starting starting to take notice, and then once they come in here and they start building relationships, these schools and seeing the talent come down the pipeline, that's just going to increase the number of times you know they're going to come back or the number of schools that are come back and and look for kids in the future, and so that just you know I mean it like it, you know I know that a lot of people you know especially people who went to Missouri think that that you know the in-state school should carry more weight, but it's just a, a fact it, that you know if you're a kid getting offers from Missouri and then getting offers from Ohio State and Oklahoma like those that's going to mean it's going to be exciting and guess what if the in-state school should carry more weight then also that has to go the other way and the in-state school can't tell a kid oh no sorry you don't have an offer right. here anymore so if you're you know I, I understand being upset that Missouri is held to a higher standard but if you think the kids owe Missouri something then Missouri has to owe those kids something too and I'm just impressed that in 22 minutes we managed to solve all of these things, <laughs> and there are no more questions whatsoever. All right, speaking of problems that need to be addressed, we are going to go to Knoxville, Tennessee, and longtime friend Blake Topmeyer writes now for the Knoxville News Sentinel, and Blake, I don't know where to start, so I just want to start with this. Did Jeremy Pruitt not know how Titanic ended? When he said what he said this week, like, did he think there was some uh, some surprise ending none of us had seen? Yeah, I think that was a metaphor that got away from him there. I, <laughs> I think he was trying to kind of pass off a joke to the quarterback club. Yeah. The interesting thing is, like, Pruitt, as dry as he can be in press conferences, he's actually pretty good in those settings where he's, like, interacting with fans. So I think he kind of had this, like, metaphor joke worked up and was talking about, like, the, the mice on the Titanic fleeing from danger. But I think what, like, didn't, like, settle into him was, like, dude, in this metaphor, your program's the Titanic. The the mice were the smart ones because everything that stayed on the Titanic died. (laughs) Yeah, I I guess that didn't dawn on him, or maybe he didn't think it was relevant. But, yeah, that was a metaphor that uh, he'd probably like to have back because, uh, yeah, in the end, he was comparing his program to the Titanic, which, you know, I just think that should be like media relations 101, right? Like <laughs> at no point when you're ever talking about anything related to your program, should you ever mention the word Titanic? I, I, I want <laughs> I Hindenburg in next week's press conference. <laughs> no kidding. Well, I see. I feel like an, an obvious segue then, Blake, is obviously Tennessee has not had uh, the best start to the season, losing to Georgia, Georgia Southern and BYU. Uh, is has Pruitt lost the the fan base? Uh, I what I mean, what is the confidence level in him at this point among the fans? It's kind of interesting because you certainly have a vocal section of the fan base. The more vocal section is in the fire him crowd, mm-hmm. um, but Always. this yeah exactly. But this isn't exactly like 2017 Butch Jones's final year, where I feel like especially by like the midpoint of that season, you couldn't find a Tennessee fan. Like even, even the folks that don't like to see people get fired, like pretty much everybody was in the fire him crowd. This situation's not like that. I mean, you, you have a, a vocal segment of the fan base that is like, oh, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. Tennessee lost to Georgia State. They're 0-2 for the first time since 1988. He's got to go. But I think there's just as big of a portion of the fan base that still has this has belief in in Pruitt or at the very least is 
of the understanding that like, okay, you can't fire a guy 14 games into his career when he's under contract for four more seasons after this one, when you're paying the last head coach until 2021, (laughs) you know, when it would cost $20 million to get rid of this coaching staff. um, You know, I, I think there's just as much or a bigger segment of the fan base that is in that group and is still of the belief of, uh, look, uh, you know, Jeremy Pruitt deserves at least a couple seasons, uh, you know, two, three seasons minimum um, before some judgment, you know, some definitive judgment is passed. So I, I would say it's kind of a, a 50-50 split at the point. It's just that the, the fire him crowd certainly is the one with the megaphone. Don't we have to kind of address the, uh, to continue the metaphor, the giant iceberg here, which is, if for some reason Tennessee did choose to fire Pruitt either during this season or at the end of it, the track record with coaching searches isn't really great the last couple of years. Uh, no. <laughs> and, you know, certainly the, the elephant in the room would be the, uh, you know, the chance of Philip Fulmer becoming interim coach. I mean, it, that, it, that's like been everyone outside of Knoxville is clearly rooting for that. We all want to see. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the the idea that's kind of floating in the corners and everywhere. And in some places, it's not even in the corners, it's center stage. I mean, for me, just looking at this from a rational perspective, and I, and I know the joke here is that <laughs> Tennessee coaching searches don't always unfold in a rational perspective. I get, I get that. Um, but just looking at things from a rational sense, Philip Fulmer has said from day one, that his number one job as athletic director is to get football right. And that's true. That's, that is his number one job as athletic director. That is frankly the reason why he has this job among a couple others. But uh, I mean, really, that's why Philip Fulmer is the AD is because there were people that thought Philip Fulmer was the right guy to get football back. And so if you have to fire Jeremy Pruitt and, and I, you know, I'm certainly in the camp that I think we're a long ways from that point still, uh, but if it at some point comes to that, then how do you make Philip Fulmer the football coach? Because if it gets to the point where Jeremy Pruitt is fired, then Philip Fulmer has failed as AD. But I know that's talking logic and that's talking <laughs> rationally and that things don't always proceed in, in those fashions uh, in, in coaching searches. So, Blake, I, I wanted to to ask because I, I actually have not gotten a chance to watch very much of Tennessee's games. We were traveling during the first one. I caught the last yeah, few the minutes of the BYU game. What are kind of the, the on-field causes of, of these losses? I mean, I know I know we can talk a lot about, you know, you know Pruitt and and kind of some of his decisions, but what what has gone wrong on the field? Well, it really is pretty stunning to me that Tennessee is sitting here at 0-2. I mean, the fact that they lost to BYU, I always counted that as, as kind of a toss-up game entering the season. But 0-2, really, I, nobody saw that coming um, because there's enough talent on this team that there's no excuse for Tennessee to be 0-2. Offensively, it's by and large the same offense they had last year. Now, I know it wasn't a very good offense, but there is some pieces there that you thought they could be decent enough offensively and where the issues are showing up mostly are on on defense um which is puzzling from the aspect of you know the reason Pruitt has this job one of the reasons is that he was a really successful defensive coordinator right uh but you start to look at it and where Tennessee lost uh, a lot of bodies from last year to this year was on defense they, they lost their entire starting defensive line and then they get into the preseason 
and their top returning defensive lineman goes down to the year with season-ending injury. Their leading tackler from the last two years, Daniel Batuli, misses the first two games. Uh, Their best player in the secondary, Bryce Thompson, a freshman All-America selection last year, he's suspended for the first two games. And so you start adding it up, and only three guys out there through two games uh, were returning starters from last year. Now, that's not to just blanket all of uh, these two losses. The fact is, there's still plenty of talent in that room that they should have beat Georgia State. I mean, let's not lose sight of that. Uh, but I, I think there were a lot of deficiencies revealed uh, on the defense in those first two games, and it's not just from a body's perspective. It's not just from a, well, they don't have a bunch of returning starters perspective. It, it got down to simple things like communication and alignment. Uh, I mean, that's just been a nightmare for Tennessee's defense for for two games, and there's no question that part of that has to go back on the coaching staff. Uh, you can't have these alignment issues, these communication issues. I mean, you guys might have seen the, the screen grab I put up after the season opener. There was one play against Georgia State <laughs> where they had three guys lined up within a foot of each other uh, across from the left tackle, uh, and there was nobody on the other end of the line. It was like uh, somebody said to me on Twitter, it was like a glitch on Madden where your defensive tackle <laughs> just disappears. You know, I mean, it was – I mean, junior high type errors. Like, you know, the, 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 the play and regulation that, that set up BYU for the game-tying field goal, it was a, a cornerback, one of their, their guys who is a returning starter, uh, so you can't blame that on a freshman mistake. Uh, you know, he, he clearly didn't know or, or or maybe he did know and just had a brain fart, but he didn't execute cover three coverage. Uh, you know, I mean, he was acting like it was man defense or cover two, and that's how BYU gets behind the defense there for a deep pass. And so just, you know, simple mental errors, missed assignments, communication. I mean, it's really just been torturing this defense in, in ways that uh, are kind of beyond explanation, even just due to youth. Well, and no matter how much football we watch and how many times we see it not play out, we just look at games and go, well, I don't know. This team has better players, so they're going to win. Like, the end of that BYU game, the only game I can remember where I thought there was less of a chance of the team that won winning the game was when Michigan dropped back to punt a few years ago and then (laughs) dropped the snap and Michigan State returned. Other than that, I've seriously never seen a game that was more over that was won by the team that was behind. I mean – How much of it, and we never talk about this part of it, but Tennessee to me just looked like a team in that fourth quarter that was sitting there going, I know we're going to screw this up. I don't know how (laughs) we're going to do it, but we will find a way to lose games because that's what we've done. I I mean, how much is it just in their heads? Well, it's interesting you point that out, Gabe, because that was one of the stories I wrote after that game uh, on Saturday night was something to that effect of, is it just gotten to the point where this team is just too accustomed to losing? And when I say that, I don't mean like these guys are okay with losing. I think that's thrown around way too much. Like these guys, you know, and I'm not just saying Tennessee, but when teams, yeah, yeah. I mean like guys not caring or was the effort not there? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, the effort was there, but you know what I'm talking about? Just like that, that mentality of like, if you're not accustomed to winning and like lurking in the back of your head is, is, you know, all the games that you've lost over the years, like even at a subconscious level. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that that is, is possibly playing a part here because the veterans in this program have not been part of a lot of success the last couple seasons. I mean, yeah, if they were around long enough to, 
to be a part of it in 2016, sure. But no one that's that's playing on this team, you know, really had a memorable hand in 2016 other than Jawan Jennings, uh, who is the leader of this team. You know, the rest of these guys, the veterans, they were p- prominent parts of the 2017 season, and they were around for that circus of a coaching search. And they're around for last season. And, you know, I mean, these are guys that haven't tasted a lot of winning in the last couple of years. So I do think that's part of it, um, you know, where like most other teams in that situation uh, last Saturday, they, they don't find a way to screw that up. You know, I mean, they, they finished that off. But I mean, I do think there is some level of, of truth to that with this team of just there, there's too much losing that's gone on. And, and, you know, in some ways, I think that kind of creeps up Saturday after Saturday. So Blake, I have to ask, you know, a lot of us in, in sports writing kind of tend to think, you know, that, that like our fans are the worst, but like Tennessee fans are, are a little bit special. And especially, uh, you know, on Twitter, uh, they, they have the, the, the vol Twitter thing is real. I'll say that, uh, the, the Tennessee fan uh, social media presence is somewhat unique. And from an outside perspective, it has been, it, you know, kind of, almost a little bit amusing to follow just kind of all the stuff that's been going on between, you know, not just the the losses, but but kind of the way some of it's unfolded, the absurdity, the Jeremy Pruitt quote, even, you know, kind of like the the metaphor of the boat sinking before the season opener. <laughs> uh, from your perspective, I don't want to get you in trouble with your, your Twitter followers, but is, is it is it to the point where, like, is, is it amusing to you or is it, like, unbearable? Well... Mitch, there's really no way I, you could get me in more trouble with my Twitter followers than <laughs> I already am. Like, I mean, for the last few weeks, I've like I've been public enemy number one for this fan base. Uh, well, I Mike Wilson wants to large, talk. But, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, for Vault Twitter, um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think Tennessee fan. There's a certain segment of this fan base, um, the the Vault Twitter crowd, that I think kind of wears it as like a badge of honor, like. Um, let's see how much of a frenzy we can get ourselves worked up into. Let's see how much ridiculousness we can, uh, we can reach. I, I will say that I, I do think there's like two portions of the Tennessee fan base. There's ball Twitter and then there's Tennessee fans, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and not to say that ball Twitter aren't Tennessee fans too, but they're like an entire different like sect of Tennessee fandom. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's, kind of interesting because i have interactions with other tennessee fans that are are much more reasonable much more rational uh they're not looking to you know start twitter riots or or whatever um and but it is it is different i mean there there is a, a a very real difference i mean gabe i see you uh arguing with twitter followers all the time so it's i know this fun. goes on everywhere um <laughs> but uh yeah i mean i i do think that Midwestern hospitality uh, is is a real thing, and uh, there's times where uh, uh, I think uh, Vault Twitter could use some of that. <laughs> All right, so last thing, after we've spent like 15 minutes uh, keeping everybody on the Titanic and firing Jeremy Pruitt and all that, like there are 10 games left to be played. So what is a reasonable I, I, like, I'm not sure this season will be viewed as a success by Tennessee fans now, no matter what happens given the first two weeks. But what is a reasonable, hey, he kind of turned this thing around and you feel okay going into next year's situation the rest of the way? Yeah, I mean, for me, that's the storyline from here on out. Like, does this 
just become a, a disaster of a season where they limp to the finish and go like two and ten, three and nine, something like that? Or, um, you know, can he rally this thing? Because, like I was saying earlier, I still think there's enough people out there that have belief in Jeremy Pruitt and, or at least are kind of hopeful that maybe they don't have to fire up another coaching search again. Uh, I, I do think there's enough people out there that it, with a strong finish, there would be belief going into 2020 of, okay, well, maybe Tennessee was, was a year further away than initially thought. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's all about how do they look from here? You know, I mean, can they uh, win these two remaining non-conference games? You would, you would think so. Uh, but then beyond that, can they be competitive in the SEC? Can they get a few SEC wins? You know, I mean, this is the same team that last year, went out and beat Auburn on the road and, and beat a Kentucky team that was playing really, really well at that juncture. And then, yeah, I mean, they collapsed down the stretch um, and were awful against Missouri and Vanderbilt. I mean, it was a very Jekyll and Hyde team last year. Um, but I think this year, if there's at least some repeat of the highs, uh, then that would restore some confidence going into to next season. Because I've thought all along that 2020, I mean, year three, was really the key for Jeremy Pruitt. He just, I mean, he has to have at least some level of, of success and something to hang his hat on in year two to make sure that there is a 2020 uh, for him at Tennessee. And so, you know, go out, get a couple SEC wins. I still think this team is talented enough uh, that they can win a few SEC games. Uh, I mean, I just, maybe I'm crazy and, and it's possible because this is the same team that lost to Georgia State, but I don't think this is a team that's going to go two and 10. I really, I don't. I, I, I mean, if I just looked out there and said like, my gosh, this is a team with zero talent, uh, then yeah, I could see two and 10, but I, I do think there's enough talent there to win a couple sec games. Uh, if they can clean up a lot of these missed assignments and mental errors on defense, uh, they're getting a couple starters back this week on defense. So yeah, I mean, I, I think realistically, four maybe five wins at this point i really don't see how they're going to get to six and get the bowl eligibility not with alabama georgia florida on the schedule i mean if you're counting those as losses i mean they got five losses right there so i mean i think getting the six wins is probably hard but four or five i think is still doable all right well blake appreciate it we will be watching with utter fascination and we'll have you back on in late november to predict missouri to win 50 to 17 all right. Sounds good, guys. And <laughs> Thanks, we'll see uh, how many more uh, boat metaphors come along. Because Mitchell was right, you know, with that, that, that Vol Navy ship uh, burning and sinking and the Titanic reference. Yeah. It's like the sinking of vessels is sort of becoming <laughs> the uh, the undertones of this season. You, That's always you what thought you, want. you escaped the madness when you left Columbia. <laughs> I know. Just waiting to cover a winner. But and I, maybe I left Missouri too soon. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Blake. Hey, thanks, guys. Blake Topmeyer, Knoxville News Sentinel. It, like, I, I mean, on one hand, you kind of do, especially when you read Twitter, you feel for him. But, like, from the outside, I'm sorry, but it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I, I I mean, it just is. It, it really is. It, it's, and like I said earlier, it's not just that they're losing to, to, to worst teams. Right. It's just, like, the absurdity of all this stuff. I mean, especially the, the Titanic quote, but, like, you know, the the formation he pointed out like, that looked like a glitch in the, that last play against BYU. It's just, like, it's just stuff you, you've, like, never seen before. And, 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 like, I mean, and I know he made a good point, and I didn't mean to lump all of Tennessee's fan base into the mm-hmm. crazies, but, like, 
the the interactions that even we as as uh, people media members who cover another team have with some Tennessee fans on Twitter makes you not necessarily root I, for them all the time. I mean, I can one hundred percent guarantee. Well, I can't do this because Alabama and Auburn might be different. Yeah, but you take them out. You talk to people who follow the other eleven teams in the SEC, and you say, "Who's your least favorite fan base?" They are all saying Tennessee. Yeah. Every last one of them is saying Tennessee. Yeah, and so that that. That probably, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, so that, that, there's, there's not no, a lot of sympathy. Out. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. It's, yeah. uh, it, it, it makes it a little more amusing. So again, Missouri, 630 Saturday night against SEMO. It is on the SEC alternate channel. No, I don't know where it is. No, I'm not going to tell you where it is. Um, you know, go to the game if you want to. Have a lot of beers because you're going to need something to get through the second half of this one, I think. Definitely uh, get some Shakespeare's pizza. Definitely, yes. I, I don't know how I could forget that. Actually, leave the game at halftime, order eight Shakespeare's pizzas, pick them up, and just make a spectacle of yourself Saturday <laughs> night. So we encourage that. Uh, again, mention the podcast when you call Shakespeare's. 15% off. Next week, hey, we'll be back talking about real football. So that'll be fun. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then.